fighting for the record of ownership of the investors to be in the central securities depository as a beneficial owner, the name of the person in the register. We were never allowed by the market. So we ended up at straight having only nominee accounts. So in reality, I could not offer the investors that information real time because that information was now residing in all the custodian banks, in the brokers, in the nominee accounts of administrators, but not in the straight register. Then the listed company said, we want real-time information as to who's buying and selling our shares. As you know very well, when there's like a, a takeover possibility of a company, it's very important for the issuer to know who is the one buying the shares. We couldn't offer that information because these registers were totally you know, in different places. And therefore it will take us a week or, or more to get that information. By then the trading had happened and they would have been taken over. So it was all of these things that we couldn't do. And I knew that even though we tried to do the best, the plumbing was broken because the level of consciousness that we had at that time did not allow us to move forward. And it's funny enough, I can bring you back to this 2021 when you had that GameStop saga that proves that the plumbing is broken, that it takes three days or two days to settle, that there's layers upon layers of intermediaries. Why? Because even though I didn't want the intermediaries to be part of this, I was told by my bosses, the board of directors made up of the banks and the stock exchange, sorry, we're going to allow everybody and their mothers to take a cut in this transaction, when in reality you didn't need all this. And therefore, that's why we have around the world, not just in Africa, every market, even the US market, proof that the plumbing is not working. We have this legacy, we have mainframes, we have swift messages, we have costs that are not needed. When I read Satoshi's paper, he, the paper says, guys, you got it all wrong. You've been centralizing information, you've been relying on intermediaries from all these custodian banks, the brokers, the regulators, the auditors, and what happened was that we had in 2008 a financial crisis that proved that the system is broken. So Satoshi issues his paper in January 2009 after the crisis saying, guys, you need to decentralize and you need to put the controls in the technology. You do not rely on intermediaries. You do not rely on all these silos and all these wall gardens and everything you built is all wrong. And that's why you're gonna carry on having failures. And reliance on auditors, I'm trained as an auditor, is a mistake because the poor auditor cannot fight when there's collusion or corruption, he can't. There's so many ways to hide corruption from an auditor, especially when there's collusion. And that's why we still have failures. You know, recently BBS Bank, uh, Steinhoff and the list will never end. You know, in, a, in everywhere in the world, look at what happened in Germany with a Wirecard and so many. It's so easy to actually pull the wool over the eyes of anybody in the current system. So Satoshi says, as Einstein said, you need a different level of consciousness to fix a problem. You cannot fix it with the same level of consciousness that created the problem. So I knew that I was hitting my head against a wall trying to change the board, the banks, the stock exchange with the new thinking. I did try. I have to tell you, Colin, that when I read Satoshi's paper, I went to the board and said, guys, unless we change what we do and decentralize, in 10 years or more, we won't have a need for straight. 
And I actually predict that the number of listed companies in the JSC will start reducing. And remember, the income from strike came from the number of trades at the JSC. So I knew that if I had to stay, I would be rearranging the JSC in the Titanic. And I wasn't prepared to do that. And the level of, I don't know what the word is, the, not aggression, but uh, um, you know, what is the word? Uh, misunderstanding with the board increased because whatever I was seeing that was the future, they went and held on to the fact that no, the law says that this is the way it's going to be. Trust me, Colin, the law will not stop the innovation that is taking place in the world. It won't. This is something that has been unleashed into the world and everybody's going to make sure that we bring it to the world. So that's why my only solution was to resign. And then your journey took you into consensus um, and you really started to go and expand and, and move uh, not just into understanding the details of uh, how Bitcoin has going and been created and the, and the assets that go behind it, the, the methodology, uh, the programming, the benefits and all of the other exciting stuff that goes into that. You then started to pick up on the Ethereum journey and started to look more into the blockchain and the smart contracts world. Because that's what my passion is. Imagine that now I know that this technology can eradicate corruption. It can bring transparency. It, it eliminates the intermediaries. It cuts costs. The other thing that I'm absolutely passionate about this technology is that when you study how we, all of us, you know, that created the financial markets, we created a, a financial market that didn't care about the poor people. We just created a financial market that cares about the elite. I'll give you an example. Applicable to South Africa. In South Africa, there's not more than 2 million investors, direct investors in the stock market. Why? Because it's very expensive. So you need to trade large volumes to make it uh, worthwhile. Yes, there's a lot of investors uh, and, you know, indirect, you know, pension funds, ETFs, etc. but not direct investors. And that applies in many countries in the world because the costs are high. The same as opening a bank account. You know, the normal charges is 500 rand a month. If you are a, a person that lives, you know, day to day, you know, below the bread line, 500 rand for opening an account. Not only that, many people don't have a proof of address or they don't have an ID. Without a proof of address and an ID, you cannot open a bank account. So it's recorded, I've documented that there's more than 1 billion people in the world that have been left out of any abilities to enjoy economic success because we have never cared for them. For the first time, this technology has, is going to become so cheap and so easily accessible to anybody that all of these people will be able to be offered incredible opportunities to create wealth for themselves and be part That's of the global economy. You know, um, you think this is going to become incredibly cheap, but you know, let, let's go through those pros and cons because you know, on the one side, we've got this huge interest from people. We'll use Bitcoin as the example here before going on to, you know, decentralized finance in general. But you've got this huge interest from some people. It's, you know, uh, rage against the machine. We're breaking down governments and central control. And um, others are liking it for the technology. But in the main, we're looking at it and saying it's decentralized, it's safe, it's trustless, so that it's secure with the cryptology that sits behind it. It's immutable, so you can't go in and edit information um, that's been sitting there. And so, so it's... In theory, it's incredibly safe, at least if you can remember your private key or, or your password. But on the other hand, we're seeing that it's incredibly slow and cumbersome, 10 minutes to go and um, actually manufacture your trade that's going through. It's, 
it's incredibly energy intensive and, and it will get more energy intensive because as there's less coins to go and mine and more people participating, you're going to go and start to see even more acceleration in the actual uh, machine power you need to go and drive this. So now we're bringing in the concerns about environmental factors because of that energy utilization. So some people also think that actual, the, the, the transition fee is going to go up because as the value goes up, as more people use it, as the mining intensity goes up, it's going to cost more to go and do this. I'll give you just one last example we're seeing, for example, on Coinbase, where Coinbase is literally minting it. They are charging not just basis points like the JSE would, they're charging uh, one, two, three, four, five percent for a transaction, if not more. So it's incredibly expensive. Do you really think this is going to get cheap? And do you think they'll solve those issues about, about the energy costs that are going with it? Of course. First example, let me explain. The beauty of this technology is that it's open source in the internet. So anybody can create a cryptocurrency exchange. Anybody can come into mining. So all, as I said, all these silos, all these uh, protected mechanisms we gave the banks to be the only one where the economy says that if you're going to transact, you need to open a bank account. Why? Do you understand that we were absolutely, we, and I'm saying the collective we, you know, that I was part of that regulatory environment. And that's what we did. We, we, we protected vested interest. In this case, anybody can come in. So for example, First, let me handle the proof of work. Proof of work is the mechanism that Bitcoin uses in order to do the, the, the cryptography, the, you know, the mathematical formula to make sure that nobody's cheating. That, yes, in some countries, it uses electricity that is not uh, coming from natural sources. But most of the countries that are using the mining rigs, like in China or Iceland, they're using natural resources. So it's this story about Oh my God, it's bad for the climate, whatever, I don't know. I can also uh, put on the table that having all the mainframes and using Swift around the world is using a lot of electricity that comes from coal around the world. All right, so it's all going solar and wind and that's the energy solution. Yes. Now we've got the yes. second issue where it requires immense amounts of effort and complexity to actually go and drive this. So how do we now solve the second part of the cost aspect so that it starts? Okay, wait, I'm getting there, wait. The main thing I want to say, Ethereum, as you know, it was created in 2014. It brought an incredible improvement to the functionality and smart contracts and additional um, requirements that made the blockchain and Ethereum the internet of value. Ethereum is migrating to proof of stake. Proof of stake will not require electricity like proof of work. So here we've got something that now you can tick result. Besides Ethereum, there are many platforms that are being invented today. Um, and therefore, the competition will actually guide us as to who's going to be the most uh, successful. Remember, Coinbase is the first one that uh, is bringing to market something totally regulated and totally you know, complying with absolutely every law and regulation that you can imagine to the extent that they listed. And there are many cryptocurrencies exchanges. That's why we know for a fact that today there's a massive arbitrage between one cryptocurrency exchange and the other. And therefore, you can shop around around the world for any cryptocurrency exchange that will give you a transaction fees that are better than others. So what I'm saying is that because this is open, this is the internet, you can all shop around and look for uh, the, the best prices. So I also don't buy this 
story that is going to become so expensive that nobody's going to be able to access cryptocurrency exchanges. Competition. And so for the environmental issues dealt with, we're going to see normal competitive forces increase supply and there'll be forks and new technologies interested which are uh, going to radically push down the price of all of the players in this particular space, uh, which sounds great. What's next on that list, though, is what will governments do? What are the regulators going to go and do? Because clearly they're resistive to this. So the most important thing is that this requires a lot of education. You know, this is as disruptive or transformative as when the internet was created. And, they, and, you know, I'm old enough to remember the internet when it was created and the fear. We would send an email and phone each other and say, did you get it? And, and we everything operated in the intranet because we were too scared of using the internet. So, you know, and then people would say, oh, my God, this is an evil tool because people are using it for gambling and prostitution. You know what, really? So can you see how everything evolves? Uh, the most important thing for governments is to start educating themselves as to the benefits because those governments that embrace this technology like China is doing, China has been researching this and applying it in so many areas in, in so many areas of government, which you have to admit that it's incredible that they have seen the light as to the benefits of this technology. And therefore, I believe that other governments should be doing the same and having a blueprint as to, if I tell you that this technology reduces corruption and South Africa has a key problem in corruption, then if I was the president, I would have already set up you know, a committee to say, guys, how do we implement this across the board? Not just the committee that we currently have for the fourth industrial revolution. That's all good and dandy, but what about the blockchain technology, which is a ledger that everybody can see at the same time, immutable, and therefore the cheating disappears. Isn't that the first national priority for the credibility of the government in this country? So that well, is why I'm doing very concerned that people are not studying. You're doing some work with government there, Monica. So, but one of the questions is, so governments are already looking at this with their national treasuries and central banks, and they're saying the equivalent that we're comfortable with is a stable coin. So... We like the technology. We, we have to do something on this. We don't like the fact it's taken over our control of our ability to basically print money. Okay, so the one thing they don't like about Bitcoin is this limit of 21 million coins, you know, because that's completely anti any monetary policy in any government in the world. So if we, what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to see stable coins becoming the thing? And are they really like Bitcoin? I mean, there'll be crypto involved in it, but it feels like they're centralizing again. Okay, so first I would like to define a stable coin. So what's a stable coin? It's totally different to crypto. A stable coin is just technology like crypto, crypto-like, but it's backed by something. It's collateralized. So there's so many stable coins already in the market, but one very famous one is called USDC. That is um, uh, backed one-to-one -one by the dollar and it's been audited and we know that the, the collateral is there. Then you've got MakerDAO, for example. I'm giving you just simple examples that it's collateralized by ETH. So you have to, so you use cryptocurrencies to collateralize. And that is also very, very efficient. Um, there are so many, but you have to understand that what's happened is that Bitcoin was meant to be the currency for the world. It didn't turn out to be because it fluctuates. So people are using it more as a store of value. As we know, the definition of money is unit of account, medium of exchange, and store of value. 
So at this stage, Bitcoin is just a store of value and people are comparing it to gold because actually the return you get in investing in Bitcoin is much higher than gold that hardly has, you know, move up in value, even though we had crises and whatever, it's quite stuck. So we call it the old man's investment, you know, like the new generation. I doubt they're going to invest in gold, you know, they're going to like, you know, whatever. Uh, so I really believe that this is the technology of the future. So stable coins is like crypto-like, it doesn't fluctuate, so it can be used as a medium of exchange and a unit of account. So that's why you heard less than a month ago the announcement by Visa, imagine, a credit card, saying if you have USDC, you can now pay and use your USDC, which is a stable coin, backed by the US dollar, using your Visa credit card. So what happens, I'll give you an example, what normally happens by the people in this industry, you buy Bitcoin or ETH, for example, you don't want to sell it because this arena is a store of value, fluctuates. So you have the objective that this thing is going to increase in value. So, but you are 100% invested in Bitcoin and ETH, all your income there. So now you need to pay for rent and your landlord won't accept cryptocurrencies. So now what you do is that you, you take out a loan, for example, from Aave, Aave is a decentralized exchange that if you give them your crypto, it will give you um, as a loan, fiat. Fiat is the currency issued by a government. So in South Africa, fiat is rand, then you've got the, the yen, the dollar, and all these other currencies. So that's what Aave does, it gives you a loan in fiat. So you can keep the, the crypto and get fiat to pay the rent. The other thing is that you do is that when you buy and sell Bitcoin, for example, you don't convert it back into dollar or rand or yen or euro. You convert it into, for example, a stablecoin, USDC. So now you're sitting with USDC, you need to pay the rent and a Visa and MasterCard in future, all of them will allow you to use your stablecoin. So do you understand that this movement that is taking place for now, the, the younger generation is doing this? But as we move in time, people will cotton on that this is the way to go. And if we carry on doing this, then nobody's going to use the fiat currencies. And if we don't, then what happens to the fiat currencies and monetary policy and the influence that central banks want to exert on the economy? All of that is going to happen unless, and I wrote papers about this, I'm saying to the central banks, you must now issue your own stable coin backed by your own fiat currency. And, and I can write a lecture just on why this is called central bank digital currency at the retail level, why this is a game changer. And I truly believe that is the responsibility of the central bank to introduce this before everybody moves out of fiat. And I haven't even mentioned that Facebook, as you heard, is about to issue their own stable called, called DM and they reckon they've got around 2.5 billion users of Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp. So all of those people will go into the DM and might never come out of that ecosystem because if Facebook gets it right, they'll be able to have many merchants around the world accepting this DM. So do you understand what's going on around everywhere? Everything's so Mark, changing. Let's, let's, let's expand it a bit then and, and, and take it out. So if I understood that correctly, we've got you know, um, there's Bitcoin, there's variations, there's stable coins, and there's governments in different jurisdictions looking to go and push their technology onto these platforms. And they're going to have to, otherwise you're going to see, as you said, Libra, Facebook, which is 
the original project name with 2.5 billion users that suddenly get access to it for purchase. But this at the moment is still at a stage where it feels like it is an investment, it's gold, which isn't um, also equally difficult uh, to invest in, but it's made easier by financial markets. When are we going to start to see, or maybe I'm missing it, it's already happening, real benefits and user cases coming to consumers. You know, people like you and me and everyone on the call from a retail perspective, not this kind of stuff sitting in the middle of these uh, technical assets uh, sitting there at institutions and hedging and treasury and all that type of stuff. Okay, so I really believe that it's happening as, as we speak because I work for the biggest blockchain company in the world and I know what projects we work in around the world and some of them are unbelievable, you know, um, especially in the area of social impact. Um, uh, the area that uh, I would love to talk to you about later which is all about the tokenization of assets and the impact that tokenizing will have uh, in the world, you know, and that will also include the non-fungible tokens. And let's not forget the assets. We're still talking about payments, and and definitely payments are, are going to totally change because one of the biggest problems we have in Africa, for example, and many other countries, is remittances. As you know, the story of remittances, I believe, is a very sad story. It's, it's actually uh, your heart bleeds when you hear uh, people in South Africa sending money to Zimbabwe or Malawi or other places. And the money gets given to a taxi driver, cash. And they rely on the taxi driver to take money back home. And then they rely that that money went to the family and that the family is going to use the money for the purpose that they agreed to use it. I've heard horrible stories of people sending the money, working a whole year, sending the hard-earned income, and they arrive home, and the money's gone. So all of this, and the cost of remittances, listen, I'm originally from Uruguay. I send money to my family in South America. You know, it takes longer for the money to arrive than if I got in a plane and I took the money myself. Plus, sometimes the money sort of like disappears in a black hole of correspondent bankers that you don't know where the money stuck. Could be stuck any, in any bank, because as you know, the RAN hasn't got a, a relationship with a peso in Uruguay, so the money has to go rand dollar, that dollar is a bank in the US, dollar peso. So all of these people get uh, to charge, but imagine with this new technology, I'm gonna be able to transfer. I can do it today. I can transfer Bitcoins real time by just using one little finger. One finger, no, no phone calls, no intermediaries, no delays, hardly no charges. You tell me if that remittances story doesn't change. It's a game changer for people. And don't get me started when you establish a digital currency that every human being in the world would have an, a wallet in their cell phones, in their mobile phones. And this story about having the old ladies, you know that nearly 20 million people in South Africa get paid a grant? And during COVID, we had the old ladies waiting outside the post office in the rain, waiting to be paid. That is so inhumane that it's crazy that the government hasn't said, how do we pay this real time directly to the wallet? Or we saw in the US, US supposedly so sophisticated, sending by post the checks during COVID time. At least their post office works better than ours, but just try sending anything in the post office. Do you think this will be helpful for the unbanked? Helpful? It's like a no-brainer. Imagine that we are able to open accounts for anybody, 
the biometrics will require their own picture. They won't need to have an ID. Try going to get an ID today at Home Affairs. Try. You will stand in a queue in the sun for hours. And you're lucky if you'll get it because they tend to close out, down because of COVID, whatever. It's inhumane what we're doing to people because we are not realizing that there's a better way and the better way is this technology. So you open an account for anybody in a new wallet, real time, not having to walk kilometers to go to a bank branch, that by the time you get to the bank branch and you stood in the queue, they ask you for things that you don't have, like proof of address. How many people live in shacks in South Africa? Huh. How are they going to prove that they have an address in the shack or in the street? Imagine if we could open an account simply by having a mobile phone, which most people, no matter what level of income they are, they have a mobile phone. And we are even inventing, I've seen them, instruments that can be used by people that cannot even read or write, that they don't need data, they don't need the internet. We're creating all these tools so that they will be able to have access to this new technology. Imagine a person that sells in the street. They have a little stand in the street selling tomatoes. They'll get paid electronically, real time, with a QR code, you know, with so many other tools, into their own wallet, which is not uh, able to be stolen because these people are getting cash. So they turn around the corner and someone attacks them and the cash is gone. Do you know, Colin, that in South Africa, I think it's 1,5% of GDP goes to the Reserve Bank's cost in administering, cleaning, redistributing security of cash, meaning notes and coins. That's the cost of distributing and looking after this cash, which we have seen in pandemic times that people are not even using cash, which is also sad because there are people that are not giving donations to the poor people asking in the street for money because nobody wants to touch the cash and nobody wants to touch the poor people. Imagine if you could have just a simple QR code that you touch, tap into the other person's QR code and you're able to transfer donations real time in the street, wherever you go. So can you see how this changes? It's a total game changer if you are committed to making a difference. Okay, so some of the questions are coming through. I like this one. I mean, let's take it outside of financial services. We can come back to that um, again. But I just want to sort of enter it and say lending, borrowing, investments, mediums of exchange, access, smart contracts with escrow so you could do mortgages for example with the transfer of state releasing with blockchain there's lots of user cases but but what does this mean for wider business as well you know so if i'm in manufacturing for example if i'm uh, mm -hmm. sitting there as an import export business do you see this impacting literally every single business and industry in south africa everywhere you know one of the no-brainer business cases for blockchain is supply chain and trade finance why First, let me start with supply chain. Let me take the example of a producer that plants tomatoes. Then it has to sell it to someone, uh, an intermediary, that takes it in a truck to the market. Then in the market, it gets sold to the different retailers. Then the retailer brings it to the supermarket and then they sell it. That producer and all these other parties get paid three months after the goods are sold. That you can go and Google it and study the business cases of retail companies. 
that is unacceptable because in the blockchain, you can everybody can see in the mobile phone the moment that the tomatoes are harvested, how they put into the track, how they transfer to all the parties. It's made by the single version of the truth. And then with a smart contract, you say to the smart contract, when the tomatoes are given to the producer that is going to distribute it in the market, the farmer gets paid. When the goods are sold in the market, the intermediary producer gets paid. When the goods are sold in the till, everybody should get paid. So no more waiting, no more the check is in the post, no more phone calls, no more Excel spreadsheets. The blockchain records the complete audit trail, immutable, transparent, using your cell phone, you can access this information. And therefore track and trace is like the most no-brainer concept for the blockchain. Then you have trade finance. What is trade finance? Import exports. As we know, when, when someone is going to export goods, let's say from China, it requires a letter of credit that will give him the finance to produce the goods so that it can be exported. Imagine if already the bank or whoever's providing the finance, it's in the same ledger that the producer in China in the factory. And everybody can see where the goods left, how did it arrive in the port, which ship did it go to, when it did arrive in destination, when it got into the track, and all that information is real time available. So therefore, all that data can be used for the financial service provider to assess the risk and the decision-making process for providing this finance. And I can give you a lecture just on this one. So can you see, uh, when you start applying and saying, uh, you know, like at the beginning, I used to hear this thing is saying, blockchain is a problem wait, looking for a solution. What rubbish is that? It's like going to really make a massive difference to the world because it's a ledger that gets distributed. It's not centralized. It's not one honeypot for the hackers. The hackers are going to have great difficulties in hacking this information. And, and you can decide. Remember, this is the internet, and you're going to decide how many nodes, how many versions of, you know, copies of the ledger around the world you're going to have. And, and you can, you know, we, we realized at a consensus that we started with the Internet of Value, Ethereum, but then enterprises felt more comfortable with the intranet, private permission. So now we're building private permission ecosystems, but they are all integrated into the big internet whenever they want to move to the big mainnet, we call them the mainnet. So there are millions of examples. And, and, and when you're ready, I'll tell you the story about the asset side. Okay, well... It's amazing how quickly these things go over the last 15 minutes and there's more questions coming through. Something I'm interested in is your view, um, but let's let's start with a, um, a story. So back in the 90s, when the internet was just kicking off, there was this chap that came along and he thought, where can I go and put a new product or a service that's going to benefit from the internet? And he was looking at it saying, there is a growth of two and a half thousand percent per year in terms of the number of users. Still the Wild West, but I've got to get on to this uh, train. I've just got to think of something that's going to work on it. And that that was the starting thought process for uh, Amazon. Okay, What services or products can I put on this hyper-growth, exponential growth uh, technology rollout? Do you think we're seeing a similar thing here with various technologies? I just use Ethereum, you know, for example, in terms of what they're offering. You're already seeing these hyper-growth adoptions going through because from my perspective, I'm not seeing it landing in the retail stores and 
on the foot soldiers, the communities that are that are out there yet, which doesn't mean it's not happening. But are you seeing this kind of trend, you know, really getting um, momentum behind it? Do you think this is the new internet in many ways? Hundred percent. And also, with your permission, I want to explain that the internet has evolved. It's evolving. So the internet uh, web 1.0 was really takes videos, voice, not the internet of value. The internet of value came later. But then the internet developed into web 2.0, which is when all this fan, you know, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, started centralizing. And then they offer you products for free. You thought it was for free, but you actually became the product because they were selling the data of all the information you were sharing for free. So that became also unacceptable to the people that created the internet. And that's why open source is the way to go. And now we are building Web 3.0. What is Web 3.0? Decentralized, peer-to-peer. You will share information. You will have your, it's called self-sovereign identity. You will have your own cloud with your own ID, uh, record of ownership of whatever assets you have. You will not, you will have your own pictures, your own health information under your control, and you will share it with whom you want to share it directly not via Google, via Facebook, via whatever. And that is how the decentralization starts becoming a reality. And then when you're ready, I would love to tell you about decentralized finance because that is what we're building and that's going to be a game changer for the world. So let's, let's go into that because, I mean, this, from a skeptic's perspective, um, it's all very technical and may or may not mushroom into something. From my perspective, it still feels like we're trying to understand how it works as an end user. And end users don't understand how the internet works. End users Mm -hmm. of banks don't understand how the financial system works and the multiple payments that are are going through and the infrastructure providers, incredibly complex. But what we have is a really simple product. I can walk in and I can do a QR code and it's a snap scan and something magically happens in the background. I walk out with my products. Same with Amazon Go. You walk in, don't know how it works. doesn't matter. You walk out because you trust it, you know, and it's giving you some utility that you're actually enjoying. When are we going to start or, or, you know, is this, is it already started, I guess? I'm just not looking on the right websites where people are really going to start <laughs> what you're exploring. And the utility is obvious because I can just walk out, do something. It's frictionless. I've made my payments. I've done my investment. I've taken my loan. Had my uh, supply chain agreement put in place where through escrow something's happening, something's been delivered. It still feels a long way away from that, like a wild west where there are so many choices. There are no trustworthy brands that I can go out and start using already in every level. Just remember, we are in the same place when the internet was started, 1994, 1995. As I said, no trust. Everybody was like, oh my God, you know, what is this? It's evil, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, a lot of people attack it. There were laws being tried to pass to protect people from the internet, you know, like really crazy stuff. We, that's where we are, number one. Number two, this technology was created by techies. So of course they're gonna talk techie talk. But the truth be told, like you correctly say, you use the internet and you don't care that the internet is built on this technology called TCPIP. The techies want to know, well, I don't care. I know how to use the internet. And therefore, the same is going to happen to blockchain. 
that's why when I do presentations, I never really go into the detail how the blocks get created, how the cryptography works, because that's noise. But once you understand the bigger picture of what Satoshi wanted to create, which is this single version of the truth, when nobody can cheat a lie, then you start saying, oh, wow. Then when you, you have a lot of parties in a transaction, this is a no-brainer. You bring them all in the same ledger in the internet. They all can see the journal entries at the same time. And we can achieve things real time. The audit is real time. The verification is, is, is controlled by a cryptography. The actions is controlled by smart contracts. So the trust is in the computer. And then you take it one next to the next level, which we are building, which is DeFi, decentralized finance, which for me, it's every day I, go, I start screaming. I start screaming because I said, I can't believe they built this. What is DeFi? DeFi is a smart contract in the internet. You go into let's say, a, a website called Aave, A-A-B-E, and you need a loan. There's no office building, there's no shareholders, there's no board of directors, there's no filing cabinet, there's nothing behind it. It's just a program. And if you trust that the program is secure, that's why we audit the smart contracts at consensus. We have a division that does audit the smart contract. If you trust the, the smart contract, you will apply for a loan and you will get a loan real time. And there's no bias. You know, when you go to a bank, they look at you, they ask you for lots of questions. They, you know, it's been proven that there's bias about your gender, your color, your race, your all that non nonsense. The computer is not biased. The computer will give you the loan based on other data, and therefore you can get a loan repaid because the smart contract will ensure that you repay. And the data gets accumulated for the benefit of everybody. The data, you know, I don't know if you know this, Colin, but you know that the stock exchange makes more income out of uh, selling data than many of the, uh, of the other functions. Why? Because there's a time delay in releasing the data. The data gets given to those that pay for it. In this world of cryptocurrency trading, everything is known real time in any website. And therefore, there's no more monetizing selling the data because the data is free. So to understand how everything is changing and, and DeFi is not just loans. We're talking about market making. We're talking about derivative trading. We're talking about insurance. Insurance, I always say, how could it be that insurance companies are not embracing this technology? Think about it. What's an insurance policy? Is an insurance policy says, if you die, these people get paid. That's a smart contract. If I do this, therefore that. So imagine in the future for those insurance companies that want to embrace this, they will say, come to me because I will guarantee that I will pay you real time if that insurable event took place. I have been presenting to insurance companies now for the last two years. Nobody has embraced this. Why? Because they don't want to give up the legacy. But eventually new insurance companies will come about in a DeFi world and therefore, the traditional insurance companies are going to lose the clients. And that's how slowly this is like the story of the frog. You put the frog in water and you put the hot water. We're still in the lukewarm moments. And that's why you're not seeing that the frog is being boiled. How disruptive do you think this is going to be? I mean, um, in financial services, it's not well publicized, but there are estimates that they've already, as a, well, I'm talking really banks and 
insurance companies here, but particularly banks have seen 20% of their revenue and profits eroded over the last decade or so. This is just from platforms that don't even use crypto platforms, for example, like Stripe and PayPal. We've seen some move into things like peer-to-peer lending. We've seen startups and fintechs coming in, offering faster, better, you know, cloud-native digital type solutions. And so the establishment has been incredibly slow to move already. How dangerous for them if they don't really get into crypto and DeFi and blockchain is it going to be? Is this, uh, I suppose, potentially (laughs) going to be the end for some organizations? Uh, Colin, I pred- as I said, in 2016, I, pred- I said to the board of Stripe, I said, guys, if we do not do something different, incomes will start drying. Have a look to anybody listening to this webinar. Have a look at the number of listed companies on the JC. Take 10 years. The number of listed companies 10 years ago, like in the 600. Today, I don't think there's more than 350 companies listed. And more companies will delist and less companies will list because this new technology gives you so many opportunities. Look at the way that Coinbase listed. It listed on Nasdaq, but it didn't go the normal route of getting an underwriter, blah, blah, blah. Their mode was just to monetize the share price that they were trading at that time out of the market. So they just became more uh, institutionalized. But it wasn't the traditional way of listing. That's going to go out with, you know, um, yeah. But they it's going still to list so, an exchange model, which I thought was interesting. Why didn't they do an ICO, an issue coin offering, for example? Yes, because remember, they needed to, first, they believed, Brian Armstrong believes very close, uh, strongly that he wants to create change from within. So now that he's part of the, you know, the, the, the group, uh, New York's, you know, uh, the, you know the, the real legacy, he can start showing them how things can be done. The market cap of Coinbase is bigger than uh, Goldman Sachs and bigger than the New York Stock Exchange. So he's making a point. The Trojan horse strategy for marketing to, uh, I guess, bring validity yeah. to the model and take out the institutions that's hosting it, in this case, the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ. A hundred percent. i give you an example. That, uh, I predicted this, I said, if the cryptocurrencies exchanges allows you to, with a simple finger, to trade real time, no cost, no intermediaries, across you know borders, what would stop them from now not only trading cryptocurrencies but tokenized stock, stock, you know shares? And what happened a week ago? Binance announced that you could buy Tesla shares using their cryptocurrency exchange. And this is the beginning of the end for legacy financial markets if they don't get their act together. So go two last questions then. First one is around risk. I think this is a great question. What is your your perception of the risk, both from a sort of cyber attack perspective of you know DeFi and blockchain? I think that's quite quick for you to answer. But I think the harder one is what about criminality? The anonymity that you get when you're transferring and transacting on something like a blockchain-enabled system is presumably a big problem. This is going to cause issues for regulators and governments around the world. Well, not not really. I don't know if you have been following Chain Analysis. Chain Analysis is an amazing company. They're able to track exactly what's going on in the Bitcoin blockchain. So uh, they can tell you who um, is paying money to 
uh, ISIS, and everything is trackable. So yes, there are certain cryptocurrencies that have been designed to be totally private. So in the same way you use a knife for cutting meat, you could use a knife to murder someone. So some cryptocurrencies will be used for one thing or another. But let's be honest, Colin. What is being used today for criminality? Cash. Huh. And we're talking about cryptocurrencies. That is nonsense. But it will be regulated. And that's why when central bank digital currencies come to the market, they will allow certain level of privacy, like the digital dollar is talking about $10,000 transaction, up to $10,000 transaction to allow privacy. After that, you have to fully disclose the transactions. So you see how everybody likes to throw mud at this industry because it's rather to dismiss it and say, ah, oh, this is for criminals. To the point, Colin, that when I present to CEOs in South Africa and around the world, I do not mention any cryptocurrency. Why? Because the moment you talk about Bitcoin, ha, oh, that's for criminals. And then they don't listen to all the changes that are coming because of blockchain. So that's why I said to you when you when you asked me to talk about in this webinar, I said, please, please don't cover crypto because people immediately dismiss everything I have to say. But the truth be told is that if you carry on dismissing, then you're going to wake up one morning, the tipping point would be here, and you will know what hit you. That's that's the fact. When, I, when I've been doing keynotes and workshops with companies, one of the themes that we always talk about in every single industry is artificial intelligence. The argument being that if you're not using artificial intelligence to help you in a, in a in a gazillion different sorts of ways, then you will lose out because the automation and the benefits that you get from it are absolutely intense. It doesn't matter if it's data analytics, robotics, visual identification. Uh, I, don't, I don't see how companies will survive over the next decade if they aren't investing in artificial intelligence and machine learning. What's your advice then for companies around blockchain, smart contracts, decentralized finance? I mean, you've said the risks, but how... How can they start getting into it? What do they need to do to get their arms around it so that they don't see the same risks that I've just described in things like AI? Okay, and I would like to come back. Before I answer your question, I want to mention AI and how it's totally complementary to what we do. I'll give you two good examples. One, medical health. The data about your health will be under your control. So you will have your, the complete database of your medical history. And therefore, when you get sick, as we saw you in COVID, you do not go and see the doctor. You send a file electronically to the doctor. The doctor will have AI and it will feed all this data into AI. And AI will be a tool that doctors will help, it will, will get help to decide what's wrong with you. Okay. Another example, auditing. Because the record of, of ledgers will be recorded real time and the auditor will have this information real time. What happens is the auditors have do a lot of uh, procedures to determine ratios and something that detects when something is wrong. All of that work will be done by AI. So the auditor of the future won't have to come and audit your books. It will be able to get all the information real time, uh, electronically, and feed it to AI to decide what's missing, because what's missing is normally the problem. So can you see the evolution and how all the fourth industrial revolution technologies will come together. Like we know very well that uh, internet of things, devices can be hacked. But if you put an IoT with a blockchain, you can't. And therefore everything comes together, data, big data, analytics, robotics, 
everything comes together. So that's to answer that, and that's why you're absolutely correct. You will not be able to live without AI in the same way you won't be able to live with blockchain because blockchain is a new ledger. So how do we begin? Very simple. I really say this, and uh, every time I say this, they think I'm mad, but I always think you should dedicate at least an hour a day. You know that concept of at least five hours a day to learn? You need to dedicate at least an hour a day to learn. I even created a document that has a list of all the websites, all the podcasts, all the webinars that you could already access for free in the internet to start your user experience of learning about blockchain. Everything I know is because I read. No, I didn't go to university to learn this. Actually, I became a professor at the University of Johannesburg because I'm lecturing the professors about blockchain. How did I learn? On my own, in the internet. So, you know, I even got a question from a bank, which I could not believe they asked me that question. They said, should we have to learn this or can we delegate it to a division in the bank? And I said, did you delegate to a division in the bank how to use the emails? No, you don't. You all know how to use email. That's exactly the same. This is for everybody. And the sooner that you start learning, the sooner you're going to start applying this new technology. If not, your clients will move somewhere else. And just remember, Colin, that this technology is the internet. So there's no wall garden. So someone sitting in Siberia could be offering services to anybody in South Africa. You know, there's no limit. There's no, you know, the opposite. You know, if you if you put this together and you create the trust, and remember the trust is in the system, people will come to you no matter where you are. It's irrelevant if you are from Siberia or China or um, whatever, Namibia. Okay, thank you very much. I think we're going to um, just put it on pause there. But before I do, I, actually, I thought on that answer, you should say two things. I thought you were going to say, firstly, make sure you get in contact with our host today, Huawei, and partners on this series uh, would have been the, the great one. And then the second would have been, and obviously, talk to consensus as well. But for the second one, how do people get in contact you uh, with you if they want to? So definitely follow me on LinkedIn. In LinkedIn, I publish tons of information. Every, consensus produces so, much, so many papers. So every day when we produce the papers, I share them, okay? So definitely, I think that LinkedIn would be the best place to find me because that's where I spend a lot of time sharing uh, information to educate. I want to educate. That's this many YouTube presentations I've, be, I've given. So if people want to understand the basics, listen to my YouTubes. And I just want to educate the world because I really very scared that that like, uh, you know, the historian Yuval Harari, he says that society will be split between the ones that get it and the ones that don't get it. And I really hope that we don't get to that point, that, that people get the passion of saying, I want to get it. Because when you look at society today, even my grandmother can send an email. So we should get to that stage that no matter your background, your age, your education, we all should be able to use this technology. Monica, thank you very much for uh, joining us. Thank you, thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.